Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome to our first Yates on Sunday for our big interview, Chief Executive Officer and lots more of Ryanair. Uh, Michael O'Leary, you're most welcome to News Talk. Morning, Evan. Great let's, pleasure to be here. Let's just talk about the state of the nation. Bus chaos, public transport chaos on Friday. What's your assessment to the state of the nation right now? Look, let's deal with a couple of separate issues. I think the economy is doing reasonably well. Jobs are being created. So, you know, there's a lot of good on the plus side. You take various incidents, the bus chaos. The solution to that is privatise the whole lot of it. The state should not be running bus companies. It should not be subsidising train companies. Ryanair has long ago proven that actually transport belongs in the private sector. The public sector is incapable of providing either an efficient service or a low-cost service. And Your I'm, line minister, Shane Ross. Yeah. Um, first of all, what do you think of his handling of the bus issue? And secondly, how have you found him as Minister for Transport? Firstly, I think he's played a blinder on the bus transport, on the bus issue, because he stayed out of it. And the minister should stay out of those issues. Where you have public sector unions running around trying to kind of suck ministers and uh, politicians into resolving disputes. Bertie, as you remember, was a great man for, you know, opening the checkbook and buying off the unions over many years. Uh, and we are still dealing with the uh, with the damage that that caused. You have to stay out of it. Let the management of Bus Aaron manage it. And let the unions have to realise that, you know, they have to accept that there is management in place and they have to deal with the management. They can't be running but around using their platform. But surely it'll only be settled platform. by negotiation at the end of the day. Yeah, but you'll only get negotiations and common sense from unions when they understand that the government won't come along and open up the checkbook again or that they can't blackmail the government using their kind of easy platform on RTE all the time to blackmail the politicians. And the problem is, in this country, Dublin's a village and the politicians feel under pressure to get involved in things that they shouldn't be involved so in. So has and I he think been a good aviation minister? He hasn't done much in aviation, you know, and therefore... Didn't he know, walk out of meetings early? Uh, yeah, He's been some, a, bit, a bit lazy, hasn't he? I, I think that's a bit unfair. Look, thus far, if you look at the way he's handled the bus dispute, I think he's played a blinder. I mean, and he's one of the few ministers that actually have stayed out of those things. And that's what ministers should do, is stay the hell out of it. But I ask the question, why we have a ministry for transport at all? You look at what the Ministry for Transport... So we should have unreg- uh, unregulated transport. I'm all in favour of unregulated transport. Chaos. Uh, no, we don't have chaos. We, we deregulated the taxi industry in Dublin and it transformed the experience for most citizens in this town. We deregulated... Well, it's we easy didn't. for you. You have a taxi line, so you can, Absolutely. You, you can go up the bus I'm, lane. I'm Not one, all of us I'm can. I'm one of 15,000 taxi drivers. Well, I'm, I'm one of 15,000 taxi providers in this town. Uh, you know, and I remember the days when you had to wait three hours on a Friday night to get a taxi here when there was only 3,000 licences. We deregulated air travel and it's been one of the greatest successes uh, of the European Union. We should not be involved. The state has no business in running transport because the state is crap at running transport. In much the same way, the state is rubbish at running television stations and radio stations. We should privatise them because the private sector provides these services at a fraction of the cost with much greater efficiency than the public sector ever will. OK, let's talk about your day job, mm. Ryanair. The share price last time I checked was fourteen thirty. Is it a buy or a sell? I think if you look over the medium or longer term, Ryanair is a great buy. We have a great plan in place over the next eight years to grow to 200 million passengers from 106 million last year. We have a very good management team who make up for my many failings. Um, And we have a great team of 11,000 professionals who deliver the lowest cost air transport safely on a daily basis. Where's the growth going to come from? The growth's going to come from our new aircraft orders uh, that are going to place those aircraft generally around continental Europe, particularly in markets like Italy, where Alitalia is retreating, in Germany, where Air Berlin is restructuring and retreating, and in Central Europe. I don't think there's much space to grow in Ireland at the moment. The DA are back to their old habits of putting up the fees 
penalties and the charges. And the UK is going to be very difficult for the next year or two until we find some way or some outcome on Brexit, which looks like being an omni-shambles. Uh, and we, we, we'll talk about Brexit. But just, have you done a U-turn on Frankfurt? You, that was one of the high-cost airports. You used, yeah, I remember have. back in the day, you were always on about landing charges yeah. and all that crack and you were going to sort of out-of-the-way airports and people had to take long bus journeys to get to where they wanted to go and all that kind of thing from Stansted. But are you now seeing Frankfurt as a hub? No, I think that the industry has changed. And I said for many years, you know, we would go to the secondary airports because that's where we would get discounts. But increasingly, the primary airports are now coming to us, offering us discounts and lower cost efficient facilities and say, please grow here because their legacy customers are not growing. Frankfurt, Heathrow and Paris were the three airports I thought we would never fly to because they don't need our growth. But Frankfurt changed their minds. They decided they don't want to be beholden to Lufthansa. accounts for about 80% of their traffic. They're worried about being entirely dependent on Lufthansa. And I think they're using us as a way of showing Lufthansa we have other customers who fly here. But the only reason we're flying to Frankfurt is because they gave us a growth discount deal. That deal is available to Lufthansa as well if they want to deliver growth. And we're, and we're able to turn planes around in 25 minutes. So we are very happy to go to primary airports, whether it's in Rome or Madrid or Brussels or in London, as long as we have a discounted deal. And speaking of growth, the eastern part of Europe, Kiev, Poland, do you see significant growth there? Well, I would say Poland rather than Kiev, we would still consider to be the Ukraine and therefore not, not technically in Europe's open skies. But yes, I mean, you look at Poland. Poland's a country with, uh, I think the population is 40 million people, but they've only 35 million air, air travel journeys a year. Ireland is a country with 4 million, 4.5 million people. We have 35 million air journeys a year. So the potential growth in Poland is enormous as the economy grows and incomes rise. But Poland is just one of many countries where we can grow. We would also like to grow in Dublin. Uh, in Ireland, but the problem is in Ireland, you know, the uh, Dublin airport is full. We certainly need a second runway. I think there's something that Shane Ross could be and should be doing on the transport side is to push on forward with a second runway with a competing third terminal. Don't allow the DA to own it. And we've also, there's a noise issue that uh, we're still waiting for the government to, we have to have some noise regulation under the Irish Aviation Authority, but we need the government to pass the statutory instrument to enable the, the Irish Air Authority to take that over. If those are the opportunities, what about the threats to Ryanair? Surely there are emerging other people who are copying your model of low cost. But there and could, could, I mean, could, you, could you become like one of the traditional operators under threat? I doubt it. I mean, if you look at there's I look around Europe and I say with great humility, there's no competitive threat to us. Everybody else has higher costs than Ryanair and our costs are falling, their costs are rising. We have bought aircraft well. We have a supply of new aircraft coming to us. And you're not paying over the odds for fuel anymore. Uh, Well, we're paying, generally, everybody's paying about the same for fuel as as everybody else is. So I think there's no, the threats to us over the next eight, 10 years will be twofold. One, there's safety. And we have to worry about safety every single hour of every single day. We've been doing it now for 31 years. We invest very heavily in pilot training and engineering. We do all our own maintenance. So I think we're pretty good on that side. And the other one is, management kind of hubris, ill-discipline. You know, we start believing that we can walk on water. We start believing that we can run countries or that we can vertically integrate into other businesses. Then we'll make a mess of it. Well, speaking we of integration... We have to stay very focused on what we do. This holiday package, yep. are you diversifying into that? What's it's, the story it's, there? It's a logical thing. We have the biggest travel website in Europe. Uh, we're selling seats, we're selling car hire, we're selling all those things. And now we're selling package holidays as well, where people increasingly are saying... They don't want to go to a charter airline for a package holiday. 
holiday, they can actually get the package themselves and add it to a Ryanair flight, which lowers the cost of their holidays. Transatlantic discussed this with you before. Yeah. Are other people moving in on this? The Norwegian development Norwegian and so on? Norwegian are. I mean, we haven't been unable to secure a fleet of long-haul aircraft. Uh, we don't see that changing for another four or five years. Norwegian have a fleet of long-haul aircraft. We think they're expensive. Uh, we wish them well, and we're in talks at the moment, Norwegian, to feed into their long-haul more to help them than anything else, but no. I mean, our focus for the next five or eight years will be on growing from 100 to 200 million passengers, and that will all be short haul in Europe. But to put that in some context, it means there'll be an Irish airline, you know, that today is now the largest airline in the world, will now be in eight years' time, will be twice the size of the next largest airline in the world. And I think that's a phenomenal achievement for Ireland. And it's one of the, we're now one of the companies that are putting Ireland on the map. Indeed. Now, the biggest cloud on the horizon, I want to talk in some detail with you, is Brexit. First of all, what does Brexit mean for aviation? The honest answer is we don't know. And we don't know because, sadly, the British government doesn't have a clue what they're doing. They have said with certainty that they're going to leave the single sky, the, Europe, the open skies regime, which is basically the European Union for airlines because they don't want to obey European Court of Justice rulings. But if you leave open skies, then we go back to WTO rules. But aviation is not covered by WTO. So the only, if you're going to leave open skies, you must negotiate a bilateral between the UK and Europe within the next two years. And I don't think they're going to negotiate a bilateral within the next two years, because I think the Europeans are looking around and say, how do we teach the British a lesson? How do we teach the British uh, man in the street a lesson? Maybe cutting off flights for three months after the end of March 19 will begin, he'll begin to understand what's going on. Because, you know, explaining passporting of financial services doesn't appeal to the guy in the street in Hull or in Grimsby or in Leicester. But he can't go on holidays, fly to Spain for his summer holidays. Now they could begin to understand what's happening. And I think there's a real risk that there will be no flights to and from the UK for a couple of weeks or a couple of months after March 19 because it's one of the ways they're going to demonstrate to Joe Public Okay, well, well, as an aviator, what do you think is the optimum solution? Because people, you know, there's 55 million people in the UK, they still have to travel. Uh, That's a mutual desire amongst Europeans and Brits. So what do you think is the optimum solution? Look, the optimum solution is Britain doesn't leave the biggest free trading bloc in the world. And I think they may well change their minds in two years' time. I hope some common sense would prevail, but I don't get much sense of any common sense in London. Tell me this, how does someone like Norway operate their aviation? Because they're not members of the union, but they do have a trade deal. But, they, but Norway is a member of Open Skies. So Norway, as a member of Open Skies, has to respect European Court of Justice rulings. So that's the only way Britain can, can maintain Open they Skies? They can only maintain Open Skies by observing European Court of Justice rulings, but that is, you know, an anathema to the right wing of the Tory party at the moment. Now, maybe some common sense will prevail. Or alternatively, you negotiate a bilateral with Europe. But I don't see how they're going to negotiate a bilateral with Europe that doesn't include respecting the decisions of the European Court of Justice. So one way or another, the Brits are either going to get pushed off a cliff or they're going to have to back down here and say, OK, okay. We've, we've changed our minds. Well, put it like this. It's not that, that Britain doesn't have some cards to play. I was in uh, Brussels last I think week. they have very few cards Well, to I'll, play. I'll tell you one card they have to play. Mm. The £10 uh, billion mm. net contribution annually that Britain are making is two and a half times the four billion that France is paying. There's going to be a proper knife fight of who's going to make up that money. Mm. And they do have that card to play. But yeah, I mean, again, that's a having a sensible economic analysis of the situation. But this is not going to be driven by economics. This is going to be driven by politics. And the politics in Germany and in France and in Italy is... 
Britain is going to suffer leaving the European Union because if they don't suffer and they're not seen to suffer... They have to keep the sheep in the pen. Exactly. I mean, okay. it tells you everything you need to know about the European Union, but that's nevertheless the state because of the Because you've been a long-term adversary of the Eurocrats. I, I've been a long-term adversary of regulation in Europe, but a long-term supporter of the single market. The single market has been one of the great developments, economic, cultural, political developments, certainly of my lifetime. Uh, and I think Ireland's entry into the European Union in 1973 was one of the transformative. It was the way we finally ended the dead years of de Valera and isolationism and our dependence on the UK. It's been great. But a lot of the regulation is rubbish. And you know, the, my objection to the European Union is the deregulation works fine, but then Europe wants to keep re-regulating. The problems you've outlined, I could replicate for veterinary services, yep. uh, farming, for, for, uh, for agriculture and food, pharma, for, for trade, for the electricity interconnector, for yep. the fishing and blah, 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 every type of regulation. From the Irish perspective... We are absolutely unique in terms of our Anglo-Irish 600, Anglo-Irish history of 600 years. The only ones with the same language, the same land border, everything from Coronation Street to Man City. There is a, a kind of interwoven culture. Do you think, from an Irish government's perspective, it is anything other than absurd that a Luxembourg guy like Juncker, a Polish guy like Tusk, and Bernier, a French Federalist, should decide the future of Anglo-Irish relationships. Surely we should cut a bilateral deal, irrespective of what a bold boy we're going to be and delinquent we're going to be. Do you not think that should be the Irish plan? I don't think there's any prospect of Ireland cutting a bilateral with the UK. I mean, this is not Juncker, this is not Tusk, this is Merkel, this is Holland or whoever replaces him, this is the, the Italians. You know, this is the biggest free trade bloc in the world. Ireland has undoubtedly done well by, as a result of its membership of that free trade bloc and we should not compromise that membership by trying to cut some bilateral deal with Britain. And frankly, we're not big enough or strong enough to cut that bilateral deal. Uh, we will stay in the tent with the other 27. The 27 will stick we together. We won't even be in the room when uh, they're uh, deciding absolutely. what's going to happen on a 500-mile porous border. Correct. But I, I'm, the border is not that big. In, I mean, to me, we make, you know, while the politicians make a big song and dance out of the border, I think, you know, there will be a hard well, well, border Can, I, can I disagree with you from this point yeah. of view? When they didn't feck out the basket case of the Greeks, yeah. you know, and we're talking about Article 50 where someone opts to leave. There is no case for ejecting someone. Surely we can push our luck on this. I think we can't because I don't see where, I mean, I don't see that we have any politicians who are going to do that. And I'm not sure it's going to be that it is of much value to Britain as well. The reality is here, I think the Europeans are going to make it very difficult for Britain. And I suspect that... Britain and we're collateral damage and we should just suck it up. I, I don't think so. I'd be more optimistic. I think the closer you push Britain to the cliff edge in March 2019, eventually I think the Tory party will turn in on itself and realise that actually leaving the biggest single trade bloc in Europe is a stupid... It's the longest suicide note in economic history and I think they'll pull back. And I think it's in Ireland's interest to stick with the Europeans, make it as difficult as possible for Britain, even if it affects sectors like aviation, it affects the border of the north, we just get over it. But that, I think, is the best well, way of encouraging well, Britain to stay in. Yeah, I see no let's, upside well, for let's Britain go leaving. To, let's go to, to... No, I'm not talking about leaving. I'm talking about pushing our case. But, I mean, you take something like the food sector. Like, yeah. the notion that you can just diversify cheddar cheese from Britain to the continent. They don't eat cheddar cheese. They eat camembert and roquefort. It's not true, in actual fact. Increasingly, if you look at the exports of Avonmore or the if Ingrid Kerry, the, the big food ingredients companies now, it's far less dependent on the UK 
market. These are worldwide producers. They're exporting cheese all over Europe, all over America, all over the world. Our future as a nation lies in trading within the European Union. It is still the biggest free trade bloc in the world. And if our a trade with the UK is affected for a 6 or a 12 or a 24-month period, so be it. But do you, do you not guess this, that... I was in Spain and they said their biggest concern is, oh, if you give a special designated status to Northern Ireland, the Catalans will look for it. In the Eastern Bloc of Europe, their biggest worry is Putin. They want a security deal. Germans want cash from Britain. Our little Ireland's needs are going to be well down the roster. Yeah, I, I, absolutely correct. I mean, Ireland's needs are going to feature nowhere. There's going to be a hard border. Unless we my, do a bilateral deal. You won't have the freedom to do a bilateral deal. You will not be able to do a bilateral deal with the UK and preserve your free trade status with Europe. You've got to work out who you, is it in our interest to upset the British or upset the Europeans? And I have no doubt it's in our interest to work with the Europeans. If that means upsetting the British, so be it. The other passion we share, other mm. than uh, Man City, and I'm an eternal optimist about Angus Pep. cattle. Yeah, yeah uh, no, it's horse racing. Ah, uh, take a listen to this. They're coming to the elbow. There's a furlong now between Red Brum and his third Grand National Triumph. And he's coming up to the line to win it like a fresh horse in great style. His hat's off and a tremendous reception. You've never heard my like it at Liverpool. Red Brum wins the National. On this very day, the 2nd of April 1977, Red Rum's famous hat-trick victory at the Grand National at Aintree. What a horse. Now, let's talk Aintree. Looking forward to next Saturday. What's this row you got into with Phil Smith? Did you get very personal about it? The handicapper gave a couple of your horses too much weight. He gives all Irish horses except uh, Champagne Classic and a few of those uh, hurdlers of yours uh, too much weight. Um, You know, why didn't you just suck it up like a gentleman? Like this is the sport of kings. Firstly, I'm not a gentleman, as you well know. (laughs) And secondly, Phil Smith has made a whole career out of the last 10 years about saying he compresses the weight of the best horses to give them a chance running against over four and a half miles. We entered our better horses and he put them all up. He came up with this mythical notion that he has his secret handicap mark for the Irish horses. He puts them all up and then compresses it down from a weight that he put up. So my better horses in the Grand National would be expected to carry more weight than they're asked to carry in any other race over a distance that's about 50% longer than they will ever run. And we said, look, you've changed your policy. I don't have a problem if you change your policy. Just say you change your policy and then we won't bother entering the good horses. I mean, for the last four or five years, the British trained horses, the best ones, have all been compressed by five or six pounds. This is going to bore all your listeners, by the way. No, no. This year... It doesn't bore the me. Top, the top five, the top five <laughs> this horses... This is called Yates on Sunday. This is the top five horses were all Irish horses and they were all put up. And so that's... I think, but that's fine. I, the Irish are used to being put up, going to Cheltenham. We're used to that. I don't have a problem with him putting up the weights. I just have a problem saying that he's going to reduce the weights for the Grand National. He okay. does it. It's his own special Will you, will you run many horses at entry this yeah, week? Yeah, I think we'll... Well, I mean, we'll run certainly four or five of the lower-weighted horses in the Grand National. I mean, I won it last year, so I'll never win it again for What do you think Brian years. might ride, Brian Cooper? Uh, honestly, I don't know, because you have to wait until you see what the ground is going to be like on the day. He'll get... If we have four or five, he'll have his pick of the four or five. He'll ride one of the bottom weights... Um, but you know I won it last year so I'm not yeah, going to win it this year Mouse Morris uh, yeah. ruler of the world and all that kind of great stuff so is there any horse that did well at Cheltenham is going on to entry? I don't think so I mean this year because Apple of Jade? No I mean she'll stay and go to Punchstar I think this year you know uh, most of the horses who did well for us in Cheltenham were Gordon Elliott's horses and as you know Gordon and Willie are fighting hammer and nails Well I wanted the, to ask you about that Irish could you ever see the day like I mean 
the you know the rich list is is out today in the Sunday Independent, and yeah, your presume, number. I, I presume you're on it. Yeah, no, no, and I wish. <laughs> no, I'm a delinquent. Uh, number fifteen on the list, over a billion, and yet you're fighting with Willie Mullins over a few bob a month on a horse training fees. Well, it makes mean, no it, sense. It's more than a few bob. I have a lot sixty horses at Willie. It adds up to a lot of bob over on a monthly basis. Look. Willie's a brilliant trainer, but he decided to put up his fees by 10% last year. He was the only trainer putting up his fees. Was that but, the sole issue? Ah, uh, sole issue. Look, I mean... If Would we, you ever put a horse with him again? I'd have it with Willie next week as long as we could reach agreement on training fees. But I don't expect us to reach an agreement on training fees. Like, either Willie backs down or I back down, and I don't see either as being so individuals There might be down. a bilateral deal on that. I would be back there in a heartbeat as long as we can reach agreement on and fees. And in fairness, it has to be said... Kudos to Gordon Elliott. He's done a, trend, uh, you know, for such a young guy. I, Ten years ago, he hardly existed. And his first national winner, Silver Birch, to come to be what is now champion trainer-elect is extraordinary. I think, look, it's kudos to all of the top trainers in Ireland. Like, we have not just Gordon. You have Willie is a genius. He's been champion trainer for 10 years, runs a fantastic operation. Henry de Bromhead. You look at um, Jesse Harrington this year, won the Gold Cup. She's now the winning most female trainer in Cheltenham history. We have a lot of very talented trainers in this country. If you give them the right ammunition, they'll deliver the results. Um, we have a lot of talented jockeys. Like, I just, jump racing in this country is at a is on a high. It went through low periods in the 80s and 90s when nobody could afford to have horses, buy horses here. We sold all the best horses to England. Now with people like JP, myself, Rich Ritchie, um, and Graham Wiley, the best horses are it's all now here in Ireland. Excellence. And in the UK, they're looking across with great envy and greed. I, I'm glass half full with Man City and Pep Guardiola. You're I'm perpetually... Glass uh, half empty. No, the bottle completely empty, mm. you are. Uh, are you not full of hope? The lovely football he's playing, the attacking, Silva, Sterling, yeah, great, Leroy they, Sané. They just can't defend. I mean, if, you're That's the, if right. Guardiola is the best coach in the world, I mean, he's now had eight months to build, construct some kind of a defence. And what I don't understand much as I love Man City I was we have a terrific under 23s team and under 21s team and apparently none of them can defend because he keeps putting 35 year old you know, donkeys in our defence I think Stones is terrific but yeah. he gets a lot of grief because Otamendi and a goalie would help and, a, yeah, and a, Otamendi can't train I mean bring Hart back from Turin at least he stops shots yeah. so I think like, Guardiola is undoubtedly very good at the attacking side of football but you can't win trophies unless you can defend first as well and I look across at Mourinho, who I think is great. The one, I mean, Man United won't win much, but they don't concede many goals. And if you could put a Man United defence with City's attack, it'd be terrific. But the real problem, as I worry, Silva's now nearly 30. Aguero, you know, is getting older. I mean, a lot of them are getting older and we're not winning trophies. Finally, I don't do much research for these interviews, but one thing I Just did... make it up as you go yeah, Exactly. Along. <laughs> one thing I did research was that you were born... I was born in 59. I always thought you were older than me, or about the same age. You were born in shagging 1961. I'm a baby of the 60s. No, no. I am going to take life a little easier. Yeah. I, I, have you any horizon? Like, you know, I think in Bank of Ireland, Richie Boucher, they have an age at which you should yeah. move over. Do you have any any thoughts about succession in Ryanair? Or well, we moving upstairs? No, I mean, I won't move upstairs. I think when I get time to move on in Ryanair, I'll move out because it'd be wrong to move upstairs and be like a dead smell up there. Look, I what we're doing in Ryanair is very exciting. I'm certainly committed there for the next four or five years. I've signed a contract, I think, out to 1919 or 1920. Um, and maybe that's the time to go then. But my personal kind of thing, I'm, I'm at a different stage to you. My children are much younger than yours. 
I don't My know. youngest is 22, you see. I, I was smart about yeah, that. No, see, I, I got was, the breeding business out of the way earlier. I got the money made But you had a good life, you see. I had a life of hardship. It's like, I don't particularly want to go home and spend more time with young children. So, you know, <laughs> I, my youngest, Zach, at the moment, will turn seven at the end of next oh, month. Oh, you have 10 years, 14 years hard labour ahead of you. boarding school in probably, what, about five years' time. So, you know, there's. I think I'd like to spend more time at home with Mrs. O'Leary once it's a child-free zone or they've all gone to boarding school. But until then, no, I'm committed... I'm committed to Ryanair. What we do is great fun. It's very challenging. And I think we have a very exciting five or ten years ahead of us. And I would hope to be there for some, if not all, of that period. Michael O'Leary, wish you every continued success, both on the track and in the air. Thank you for joining us on Yates on Sunday. Up next, we will be talking to my old mucker, Phil Thompson, on this all the soccer action, and Brian O'Driscoll and Alan Quinlan on the rugby. Stay tuned. Thanks, Ivan, and good luck with the programme.